0: Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Engwin, and this is episode 25 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Dr. Kurt Michael. Kurt is a professor of psychology at Appalachian State University, a practicing licensed psychologist, and a crisis intervention and suicide prevention consultant on the national level. Today, Kerr discusses the journey of developing partnerships between the university and rural public schools, a partnership that has offered mental health services to thousands of rural North Carolina students and provided grad students with real-world experience. Kerr also discusses the research that's been done connecting Netflix's TV series 13 Reasons Why – with a significant increase in the use of the crisis text line 741 741. You can visit the Carlina Show website at carlina.net to learn more about Kurt and link to the show notes, which include the Rural School Mental Health Handbook. From there, you can find past episodes, connect on social media, and sign up for the mailing list. Thank you Stephen Lorca for video editing and production so we can post our episodes on The Carlina Show YouTube channel, as well as the podcast. And now I bring you Dr. Kurt Michael. So are you a a North Carolina native?
1: No, I was born and raised in Colorado, actually.
0: Okay, and what brought you to North Carolina?
1: Uh, Well, I I did my uh, internship at Duke Medical Center, and so I actually moved. At the time, my wife and I were in... um, utah that's where i did my master's and phd and then as part of my program you uh, do a resident internship at another uh, institution and so i applied all across the mostly the east coast i applied a couple out west but mostly east coast uh, medical centers is where i applied and so i ended up at duke and and that's not terribly far from where my my wife's family lives in uh, the shenandoah valley of of, uh, virginia so we f- we wanted to be, you know, uh, had a young family wanted to be close to to some in-laws and so I guess our selection was to apply to schools you know in the northeast and the southeast right. primarily and then uh so Duke was the one we picked and and then uh, kind of a funny quick story the we uh, my wife's family loves NASCAR and we were typically going to the Bristol race in Bristol, Tennessee. Uh, and we were driving through to to, uh, to go to the race or pick up my son who was with my uh, in-laws. And we drove through Boone and we stopped for a meal. And we were sitting in there and we kind of looked at each other and said, this might be an interesting place to live. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, back then there were actually pay funds. And so I walked back to the pay funds, I looked in the phone book found they had a school named Appalachian State University. I actually cold called the psychology department and a guy named Stan Asherman picked up the phone and basically just said, hello, psychology or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, do you have any jobs? And he says, matter of fact, we're looking for a child clinical psychologist, which I am. And so it, it kind of went from there. And so well, I, I don't know that I really knew much about, certainly not the Appalachian Mountains to any great extent. I I had been here previously when I worked in uh, residential treatment where we used to take kids out in the woods. And some some of those places were, in fact, some remote places of the Appalachian Mountains. So I knew about it a little bit, but I I wasn't intimately familiar. But, you know, when we uh, came to Boone, it kind of reminded me of Colorado a little mm-hmm. bit. So um, it seemed to be a good place to to. Put down some roots, and so you know we, we did.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so how long after you started with uh, with Appalachia State did you realize um, the need for the type of work that you're doing now?
1: Well, I, I assumed just from some of the work in the Rocky Mountain West, where they have you know famously or infamously high suicide rates. I figured that was probably the case, and so it, it wasn't long after I arrived in '99 that I started asking schools to let me conduct some of my research in the schools and so it was probably around the year 2000 that I, I eventually uh, was permitted to start collecting some uh, some information about the kids in the schools and began to get some verification that yes indeed not only do they have you know uh, issues and struggles like the rest of the kids in the country but maybe combined with the lack of access to resources like mental health care, it seemed like they, they weren't necessarily that different, but these other barriers were pretty clear. Economic uh, transportation that uh, seemed to make sense to set up uh, better ways to serve these kids. And so that happened almost immediately when I got here, just from my previous work, it seemed to make sense. And then when I started getting, again, information that were confirming some of my worries that, uh, Mm -hmm. we started to, to work more diligently and more deliberately to try to, to, uh, reduce those barriers. Mm
0: -hmm. And what did your earlier work look like when you first approached those schools and wanted to offer mental health resources? What, what did that, what did that look like?
1: So, you know, initially it's, it's a little bit of a, of a, a poor fit between, you know, what educators have to do and they're, 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 the list is long and, you know, I don't know that initially their, the reception to it was that good. Understandably because, you know, they're busy educating kids and a lot of times schools, I think just if I can make a, a bit of a sort of a philosophic statement, they, they're often asked to do too much as it is. Uh And so some of the early reception was, was, you know, not great partly because, you know, here's one more thing that I'm suggesting that they add to their list of responsibilities. And I think some of that early reception was in in reaction to that. And just general kind of skepticism, I think understandable skepticism that, you know, if we've got to do all this work, uh, you know, when, when exactly will we fit in the day, you know, Mm -hmm. working with these kids, mental health issues when we have, we have the, you know, the entire student body to educate. So, really the 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 earliest discussions were about how to serve the needs of the educators and not get in the way of their mission and trying to to explain how removing some of those barriers or impediments uh, mental health impairments let's say that let's say they were not attending school because they were depressed so my pitch was i can provide a treatment that will help improve their attendance just by taking part of treatment, we'll get them back in the building, uh, and they'll be better learners. Was really the, the the case I was trying to make, and I guess it really started to, to get traction when I was at a you know a parent and school meeting. It was probably two thousand three or four, somewhere somewhere in there,
0: okay.
1: and. So I did an evaluation of this child as a private practitioner in the community, and at the end of the meeting, we're talking about recommendations, and this young man had some pretty significant health issues. In fact, I think he was actually recovering from cancer.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And so at the end of my report, I said, you know, so-and-so should receive weekly uh, psychotherapy services uh, to help support his anxiety and his stress, getting readjusted to school, and so the uh, administrators in the room including the principal kind of looked at me like okay well where do we send them? and we all kind of looked at each other and there really aren't a lot of options in our rural community certainly not at the time and so we started having conversations about how we can combine the resources of, of the university in other words we train a lot of these mental health providers for in the region and whether it's in social work or in counseling or marriage and family therapy or in my discipline of psychology. So it seemed to make sense that if we could convince the schools to let us come in, demonstrate its value, bring in students under supervision, we would have have people that these families could receive services from as opposed to just, you know, if if you just leave them to their own devices and, and have them find somebody in the community. Again, it, it, it's a fairly limited uh, list of possibilities. And so it was just really trying to build capacity, especially for serving kids and adolescents mm-hmm. in a community where there really weren't a lot of options. And so it just seemed to make sense to combine this obvious you know, push to train the workforce that is at the university and combine that with all of the su- substantial needs that were already Pretty mm-hmm. clear in the communities and the schools, and so uh, and and it really took I think a fairly uh, visionary type of administrator in this particular case. her name was Angela Quick, actually, at the recommendation of my wife, who said, this is who you should talk to because a lot of times whenever you try to develop community programs, there's always a need to find champions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and you know certainly my my wife was familiar with my frustrations, going back to when we first got here, I I had a lot of doors closed in my, uh, face and she said, this is who you talk to. So kind of highlighting what we now know to be Mm -hmm. identifying champions of something. And if you don't have those champions in place, uh, you, you're pretty much dead in the water.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you said, um, that you offered treatment and psychotherapy, were those, uh, psychology, students like Matt. uh, was it a master's program or a PhD program students from Appalachia State who went into the schools and offered this, these, uh, resources?
1: Yeah, initially it was actually me and some other licensed, uh, doctoral level providers. Uh, there was a woman in social work, uh, Lauren Rankert, who is now the chair of that social work department. There was John Winnick, who's a marriage and family therapy professor. And so initially it was chiefly me and Lauren, who went in, and when we eventually were able to to demonstrate its its potential impact, that's when we started asking them, "Hey, can we can we bring our students in under our supervision?" And they began to slowly, I guess, trust us to be able to do that. And so, yeah, now it's it's almost entirely the the the, the clinical uh, labor is. I would say 90% the graduate students under supervision in the master's program in psychology, master's program in social work, master's program in marriage and family therapy and at other sites and other schools. Mm -hmm. It's, it's psychology um, solely in some of these other settings, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's, but yes, it's mostly masters and we just started a doc program. I don't know if you have talked to Lisa about any of that, but we started a, a brand new, doc program, which is really just an extension and a, mm-hmm. a natural evolution of our master's program.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, from from talking to these students during the therapy sessions, what sort of struggles were the, were they mostly teenagers? Was it a high school or was it middle school also?
1: So it started in a high school, a single high school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's expanded to middle school and actually down through kindergarten through uh, middle school as well, in some other counties, and so I think it's it started at the uh, teenage level first, and mm-hmm. it's kind of worked its way downward. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And what were some of just to give just to give an example of some of the struggles that the that the students are are going through? What are what are some things that the students are dealing with?
1: I think our two, probably maybe three most common issues that we encounter on a regular basis, probably about fifty percent of our kids are dealing with significant uh, anxiety, whether it's generalized anxiety, could be uh, maybe less lesser amount of kids with phobias, obsessive compulsive uh, concerns, depression certainly, um, and kids who are um, even suicidal, mostly in thought, some of these kids uh, get referred to us um, in advance of, we try to obviously prevent any type of uh, suicide attempt, but we're also there to deal with kids who have made attempts or let's say are hospitalized and they're coming back to the schools and we're trying to help them readjust once they return from some more intensive treatment. But generally speaking, I think about half of our, the kids we serve are, uh, have some combination of depression, anxiety, and and in 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 many cases, uh, suicidal thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are some of the root causes of the of the anxiety and, and depression? Would you say?
1: Uh, it, it it really runs the gamut. I mean, it it, it could be a, lo- a long standing, more chronic anxiety concern that they've never had assessed or treated. So again, we try to be pretty <coughs> specific in what we're trying to address, but it it really does run the the spectrum. And, you know, we, we do have kids that struggle with substance abuse issues, conduct problems, discipline problems, probably makes up the other 50% or so some combination, you know, attention deficit issues. Uh, in terms of causes, you know, it again, runs the gamut. It could be a lot of environmental stress, could be trauma, it could be um, family conflict. So there's a number of things that certainly Coincide with what they're struggling with, and and certainly a lot of these kids, maybe uh, related to their struggles you know, with their mental health uh, ailments, they don't do well in school. So we 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 don't just come in and try to serve those more psychological issues. We try to address uh, attendance issues, uh, discipline issues, even uh, grade performance. We, we're we're trying to work, you know, in. Collaboration with the educators to address all of these
0: mm-hmm.
1: particular issues, especially that inter- interfere with school success.
0: Right, right. And and what did the therapy sessions look like? How do the um, how do the the psychology students help um, the the students that they see? What what does a like a therapy plan look like?
1: Okay, so I'll just give you a couple of uh, I think. Examples that might help illustrate this. So the the, the really the, the 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 model that we use is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's something that's been you know talked about a lot in the research literature. It's an approach that uh, doesn't just sort of provide supportive counseling. It really tries to target particular behaviors that interfere with say someone's uh, depression or anxiety. So here's an example. So if someone is chronically depressed, typically what can happen is they begin to, you know, cease doing things that uh, they previously even found really fun or exciting. And so we employ uh, an intervention called behavioral activation to try to get them to, you know, from a behavioral perspective, start doing the things that they've stopped doing. And typically when people stop, you know, Doing things, they they it tends to allow depression to kind of settle in and and be a pretty uh, persistent condition. And so, doing things like activity scheduling, which is part of that behavioral activation thing I mentioned, mm-hmm. can help kids kind of fight through some of that uh, sort of inactivity that leads to even more of the same. And so we also employ a strategy called cognitive restructuring. We know that certain thought patterns, if left unchecked, tend to rather kind of quietly affect not only the way we feel, but certainly the way we behave. So we we try to target some of those beliefs or assumptions that people develop. You know, for example, if they do poorly on an exam and they begin to sort of attribute that poor performance to, let's say not being smart enough. So a cognitive restructuring intervention would seek to, uh, provide a different style of thought. So maybe the, a different thought would be instead of, I did poorly on that, that exam because I'm not smart might be, I did poorly on that exam. Cause I didn't really prepare enough. And so you're trying to, to target changeable behavior. As opposed to having this rather permanent belief that no matter what you do, you're destined to fail, and so we're trying to, you know, revise if we can, some of those core thoughts about why things happen, if that makes
0: sense. Right, right. And then um, at which point in the in the in the therapy treatment. Um, do you realize um, that the student is you know they they have been helped and they're ready to be released from the program? Um, yeah, if you could talk about that a little bit
1: yeah, we we actually commit to a fairly uh, standard and regular program evaluation, not just overall, but for every child that goes through a complete you know informed consent process. so all the parents and and the and the students that we serve are. Fully uh, briefed on exactly what the treatments are and how we go, how we plan to go about evaluating whether it's working, and and really we make adjustments if if, if we're not collecting information on how they're doing, and we do that every every time they come in, they 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 basically complete um, paper and pencil measures so we can keep track of their symptoms and their struggles. And so where we're not making gains, we tend to know that session to session. And when things are not leading to improvements, we're targeting those areas where they're clearly uh, still struggling. So we evaluate literally ongoing and uh, both along the way and at at the beginning, middle and end of the treatment that they receive. And I would say on average, the kids typically undergo about three to four months of therapy and that might add up to 10 to 14 individual meetings, each lasting 30 to 40 minutes, in which they're doing some of those targeted things I mentioned uh, earlier. So we're constantly trying to assess you know, which kids are responding. You know, Not every child responds, and so those that do not, we either change the dosage of, of psychotherapy or in, in some cases, we decide that it's best for them to seek outside services, either in addition to what they receive with us or even separately. Mm-hmm. So we're always trying to pay close attention to what what's going to best serve the needs of this child and family and, uh, and refer them if they need something additional.
0: Mm-hmm. So you started this program, you said, was it 1999?
1: The program itself didn't. Formally start until two thousand six. Okay. Uh, what I was really describing earlier is kind of the early evolution of it. Okay. Okay. And some of my some of my research that I was doing in the schools. That's kind of where I got my, uh, uh, for, I guess my start. And then as it became pretty clear that there was a need, that's when it took. I mean, kind of, kind of really illustrates how things tend to, to tend to move, to move more slowly than you'd like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it took me, you know, a good chunk of that time to really get uh, sufficient traction to uh, to actually start the program
0: right okay so you started in uh, formally in, in in 2006 and it's 2019 now so um, so what are some of the, the successes that you've seen or the growth of this program over those 13 years
1: yeah I think the the biggest thing is just the the number of graduate trainees and the students that we've served over the years and you know, it used to be a a pretty small operation, you know, essentially part-time, one clinician, you know, one principal. And in those early days, we actually had the help of a school resource officer that helped to actually manage some of the uh, more difficult cases. And so it was kind of a motley crew. And from there, it really began to, to ramp up. And so generally speaking, you know, and we have now three different school districts that we serve and I have another colleague of mine in psychology that's joined the operation. His name is uh, J.P. Jamison. So he's joined, and he runs an entire district's program really pretty much by himself. I do help him a little bit, but he's, he's chiefly there uh, doing the work and supervising students himself. And so it's really grown s- into three different school districts. And I, I can't give you an exact number of the kids we've served, but it, uh, I'm sure it's in the thousands. Oh. Over, the, over the years.
0: And what is some of the feedback you get from the grad students who are offering this, um, the therapy to the students?
1: I think the biggest advantage for grad students is, you know, when they're trying to learn how to do this work, you know, they, sometimes there's this notion that you don't start doing the real work until you graduate. And I think because they're doing this on the way to getting their degrees and eventually their their licenses in mental health professions is that they really you know they they're doing the work um, again before they're degreed which actually makes them pretty marketable once they either decide to go on and just work in the profession or in the field so they can say with confidence that when they're being interviewed that you know they actually know how to do cognitive behavioral therapy with clients in the schools and they they tend to learn lessons that they wouldn't have learned otherwise because they're actually uh, already deployed and so I think that's an advantage they also uh, talk about those that go on to get uh, PhDs that the clinical training they get at the uh, ask centers are uh, they, they find it to be very helpful and that the uh it it just makes them feel i think really prepared to go out and do this work a lot of it's very difficult like for example if if you have your first encounter with a suicidal student after you graduate um you know you, you don't even necessarily know um you know what what your strengths and weaknesses are in that approach and so under our under our programs you get a chance to do that direct work which can be pretty scary pretty anxiety provoking again um, well before you finish and so you I think it just in, improves our clinicians or our grad students confidence in doing this hard work uh, before they leave
0: mm-hmm. um, is your program is this is this unique to uh, to North Carolina in the Boone area or are other psychology and social work departments uh, doing this across the country
1: uh, well I mean the movement of school mental health is Pretty pervasive across the country. I think what's probably not as common is these kinds of partnerships between universities and rural schools. I know that that's not terribly common. For example, we have over a hundred school districts in North Carolina. You know, population of ten million people, and you know, in terms of the number of partnerships like this across the state, um, I would say there's probably fewer than 10 that have this kind of approach and maybe even fewer than three or four that do this kind of true partnership, um, in schools. And I, I can't necessarily give you a, a rundown of, of places across the country, but it, it, it's, it's fairly uncommon to have these kind of partnerships. Uh, they're hard to sustain. Um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, these are systems that don't always, consistently work together let alone in remote areas and so I think it's fairly unique uh and again we get asked to to talk about it in various places and the places that can develop these programs uh, are sometimes the, the the breakdown is when they can't develop a sustained partnership between a local university and the school district I mean I can think of probably three different uh colleagues in the state of North Carolina that have done something pretty similar and again it's it's one of those things it's it's backbreaking to sustain these things and mm-hmm. you know getting my administrators on the university side to let me not just do my teaching in the classroom which more which is more traditional but letting me do my work my teaching out in the community mm-hmm. and so I, I'm lucky because I have a university, that supports this work, and and I can't say that that's always the case for college administrators at uh-huh. various universities across the country, even though they have faculty uh-huh. who are very invested in these kinds of partnerships.
0: Uh-huh. So let's say there's a, a high school teacher listening to this episode right now and they think, well, I want to start something like this in, in my high school. I know that, you know, the students could really use this, this type of therapy. Um, what what should they do? How could they get a program like yours started in their high school?
1: Yeah, well, we actually thought that if we were to do this again, we would have appreciated some kind of central resource of, you know, like a you know, a handbook or something that would give you um, different perspectives on how to develop, uh, implement, sustain, and even fund these programs. And so JP and I, the the fellow I mentioned before, uh, wrote a handbook of rural school mental health a couple of years ago. And so I would suggest they get their hands on, I'm not trying to necessarily promote the book, but it may sound like that, but it's a really good resource. And it, it's uh, it's got 23 chapters in it, and it really it's it's sort of a how-to manual, really. And so we would recommend that anybody who's interested would get their hands on that book.
0: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, <clears throat> if you could send me the link to that, I'll add it to the show notes.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a good. There, there's there's lots of uh, of there's probably 73 different authors in that book, and I think the wisdom among those 73 scholars is pretty significant and they, and they would have different uh, perspectives, but helpful perspectives on how would, how would you start develop and sustain Mm -hmm. such.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about the, the Netflix show 13 reasons why. And Um, and you've done some research with the correlation between that show and a rise in crisis text line use. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we've been looking at that for, for a couple of years.
0: Okay. So yeah, so tell me a little bit about your thoughts because I actually, I watched the show, um, I think it was last month I, I watched it and, and I've had sort of mixed feelings about whether that could be helpful or not to teenagers, but Um, could you, could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that show?
1: Sure. But before I I do, i just, just a question for you. Have you seen both seasons or just season one or.
0: I just saw season one and I watched the first episode of season two and I lost interest. (laughs) I'll be honest. So, um, but the first season was, um, I, I pretty much binge watched it. It was, but at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, is this something that could be helpful, or yeah. not? Because they really dramatized suicide and revenge, and, and that those sort of themes. So, um, right. so my feelings are mixed.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, and, and I think you're you're in good company. I think a lot of folks see the good and the not so good in the series, and so I'll I'll just summarize kind of what how this happened for me personally. You know, being a parent, I was. Uh, hearing that a lot of teenagers were watching it. And so I didn't actually binge watch it until probably a month or so after it was released. I think it might've been a little bit, um, maybe in the middle of, uh, let's see, I think it was like maybe early April. I started watching it when it was first released. Anyway, so I'm also curious, did did you watch the last, uh, there were 13 episodes in season one and there was actually an epilogue uh, it was called Behind the, the Reasons uh, episode. Did you watch that 14th episode?
0: No, no, I didn't. I didn't, um,
1: well, and, I didn't and know that, it was there. I'll
0: have to go look that up.
1: Well, even your answer helps uh, sort of even address one of your questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, the, the, the suicide prevention community uh, is a pretty tight-knit community. And so around the time it was first released, I was at a American association of suicidology meeting in Arizona, and it's a meeting of clinicians, researchers, survivors, people with lived experience who, who convene every year. And it's been around for 50 years. I mean, it's a very well-established group of, of professionals and paraprofessionals who uh, take the issue of suicide very uh, seriously and so there was a lot of buzz at this meeting that uh, actually happened right after the release, and so a lot of us are talking, and a lot of us are concerned—we're concerned about the way it was portraying—not not only the the topic, but actually graphically showing in season one, as you recall, mm-hmm. the you know, Hannah actually uh, dying by suicide in by cutting her wrists in the bathtub, and it was. And then, the, and then her, her mother walks in. It's it's a really horrible scene. Mm-hmm. And so I think righteously got a lot of criticism for that, uh, what was thought to be by, by some gratuitous. And so I think, you know, for a lot of kids, let's say they watch it alone and they themselves are struggling with something and they don't yeah. have anybody to process it with or they've had. A traumatic experience. and Because again, the other stuff that's covered pretty clearly in the show are things like sexual assault and substance abuse and violence, domestic violence. So it's a pretty intense show. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I suppose if I could sit down and watch the, the series with my kids, you know, I would do that. And I'd want to do that. But not everybody has the luxury or the situation, circumstances that would support that Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we we a lot of us in the professional community became concerned that you know this could be a very uh, distressing thing for someone who was already vulnerable let's say that uh, and they were able to not able to process it that 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 struck us as problematic now I know in that episode 14 that I mentioned they did talk about you know they they struggled with whether to uh, show that scene, which was was mul- multiple minutes. I can't. I didn't put a stopwatch on it, but it was a
0: uh-huh.
1: it was a lengthy scene. And they talked about you know should they have done done that and and again the producers I think to their credit you know wanted to you know have this be a conversation starter. Uh-huh. And so clearly that kind of material, although again dramatized and you know fictionalized, I, I think that was you know, that's, that's part of the entertainment industry. I mean, so I think they had dual motives. I think they wanted to produce a show that was a hit and it was, Mm -hmm. and I think they wanted to also uh, promote conversations. And I think it's done that too. So Mm -hmm. those are potentially good things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, the other thing I was referring to, like, is it, is it potentially hazardous to, to, to depict that? in a way, especially for kids who may be vulnerable. And I think we're getting evidence that there are some ill effects of this. There's also the positive side, which is it is starting conversations. And there was a study that was done, and I think I sent you this paper, and it references this study. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the author team, is, the first author is Ayers, and it was published in 2017. And it really showed that internet searches after the release of of, this, of season one really spiked. Uh, and we're, we're talking like a lot of conversations online or Google searches. I think between a million and a million five more than expected uh, Google searches that had a variety of search terms like suicide prevention. And But on the other hand, kids, we think, or a lot of kids anywhere, a lot of people, we're searching things like how to kill yourself. So the worry that we have is that it's, it's, it's really showing people, Oh, this this is how you do it. Mm. And you know, that's certainly not good. Now we also have evidence that kids that uh, were interviewed right after being hospitalized for suicidal ideation were asked a, did you watch the series and B what were the effects for you personally? Uh, I think they interviewed 87 different kids who were admitted to the hospital and about half said they watched at least one episode of season one and half of those around 20 or 21 of the 87, again, half of which said they watched it. Half of the ones that watched it said it increased their suicidal thinking to some degree. And the other thing that we we, we found out is the that kids that, that had higher levels of depression, tended to have a pretty negative reaction to some of the elements in the, in the, in the series. So again, we, we have emerging evidence that there's on the, uh, on the plus side, you know, people are talking about it more on the negative side, that it's, it's potentially triggering for people. Now the, the other thing that happened, the other part of the research that we haven't quite uh, finished up yet, it's, it, it's, research that we're still doing. Mm-hmm. We wanted to find out because towards the end of season, one, when they were getting a lot of pushback in, in the media and so on, that is, their, you know, the series that Crisis Text Line uh, actually got pretty serious and partnered with uh, Netflix to produce maybe more publicized uh, resources for help seeking like Crisis Text Line. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we wanted to know what was the uh, results from that, that uh that promotion. And we, I can't talk about the findings just as of yet, cause they're not published yet, but okay. we do have some answers about that. And, and it's, it's actually not bad news. Uh, we, we, I think what I can say broadly is that we have, um, you know, early evidence that that promotional connection between, you know, a series that can be provocative and help seeking is on the rise. And I think that's, that is good news. So, okay. You can't, you can't necessarily just say sort of, it's not, it's not a clear yes or no, whether there's ill effects or positive effects. I think there's both.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know if there was a, a psychologist or a social worker who was part of the writing process of 13 Reasons Why?
1: I think they had lots of consultants, and if you watch that episode 14, you know, behind the reasons or beyond the reasons I think it's called or something like that. Uh But um, yeah, they had, I think they had several consultants that they worked with Mm -hmm. and I I, I think that's good too. I, I, I just, I I think there were uh, folks in the community not associated with the series that, that felt like they, they, they just didn't do enough. Mm -hmm. And, and so the fact that they, you know, made a pivot and were more deliberate about help seeking resources, you know, let's say at the bottom of the screen, you know, before and after every episode was, was something that they added. I think that's great. I, if, if we can really get people to, to become aware of these resources more readily, Uh I think it just improves even my ability to work with kids in schools on the ground. Because if, if in between, let's say, you know, their session is not for a few more days, and they have this ability to reach out to an anonymous and free and fully twenty four seven available service like crisis text line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's where we need to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that that the the. The people in, your, in the suicide prevention community um, said that the that thirteen why, reasons why didn't do enough. Like, what else could they have done? What else, for example, could a television yeah. show like that have done? Yeah,
1: I, I think, like I mentioned, maybe instead of having the, you know, how you said you didn't notice that fourteenth uh, uh, episode, I, I think that should have potentially been on the front end,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or again before and after every single episode itself or even you know when the credits roll you know or even before the the, sh- the show starts if, if you're concerned about uh, someone call this number or here's the suicide prevention hotline mm-hmm. you know and here's crisis text line's number the, the the more that could have been done would have been promoting and making more visible those resources with, that we now are getting information back that are not only being utilized to a much higher degree, mm-hmm. now, if you, if you add up, if you go to the crisis text line website and you see how many text conversations they've had since their inception, I think in 2012 or 13, it's something pushing a hundred million. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. And so I think that's an obvious place where we could be, we could do better.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and with the, with the success as at least with the number of people who have watched the 13 reasons why, um, there's likely to, to be more shows and movies that kind of broach this issue. Um, what, what recommendations or suggestions do you have to those, the writers and producers of, of any new show that, that, that comes on?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, you know, combine some of the, uh, promotion of the show information along with the uh, visibility and promotion of those same resources that we've just talked about and, and others too. I mean, again, I, the, the examples I gave you about even the, the, the things that are our, our kids in our schools are talking about. I mean, a lot of our kids, by the way, when we were serving that we are serving, will mention the series. And again, there's, there's no doubt that these young people are, are, if not, uh, flocking to these shows, uh, they're certainly, you know, watching a lot of this stuff. And so I think just being a lot more sensitive to the possibility that some of the material can be really pretty tough material and tough to, to, to process and handle that, uh, we, we have to be ready to, uh, serve those, those kids that come to our attention. It's sort of like, when you're, whenever you're you're collecting information on kids who have whatever they're struggling with it, it's one thing to find out about it but if you find out about it and then you have nothing to, to offer them I think that's a, that's a big problem so a lot of times our our philosophy has always been if we're going to build some type of intervention apparatus that we we, we, we want to sort of do some careful, assessment, surveys, et cetera, to know what the extent of the problem is before we sort of set out to do something about it. Because, you know, what happens if we, you know, evaluate, let's say, every kid in a school and we um, don't know that, let's say, 20% of the kids are struggling with depression, let's say, just as an example. Okay. That if, we, if we're if we not prepared to, to, to learn that answer and then respond, I think that's irresponsible. And so I think anything that could... Conceivably, sort of trigger these kinds of reactions. We we have to be prepared to respond. Mm-hmm. And so I think any way that these shows, uh, you know, set this up, I, I think they need to be a lot more mindful and purposeful in uh, setting up support systems uh, mm-hmm. at the time of release.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is the is the crisis text line? Is that just in the states, or is that international?
1: I think it's mostly a a, a U.S. service. It, it, I I could be out of the loop, and maybe they are going international. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can access it anywhere you have a cell phone. So I suppose conceivably you could you could access it in, in, in other countries. But I I could be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't uh, I don't know the answer to that. I could certainly direct you to someone who could who, who could answer it. but I know that you know as long as you have access to that seven four one seven four one number,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, that could, again, I think theoretically be anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And is that a, a number that people text or do they do they call it and actually talk to somebody?
1: It's actually just a, a strictly text interaction.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So basically if you text start or hello, to seven, four, one, seven, four, one, uh, basically an algorithm would, would kick in. And if you say certain keywords in your text, it, a live text counselor gets dispatched to you. Mm-hmm. So it kind of has the capacity to, to just from a technology perspective, it can, it can receive a, a lot of, um, in, you know, in incoming text, uh, calls. And then depending on what you say or what the topic is, that determines how quickly someone gets on the line with you that's live. Okay. And they have a, an incredible workforce of volunteers. I mean, they if, last I, I recall, they they've got, uh, you know, five to six thousand volunteer text counselors available, uh, mm-hmm. not at a, every one time. But they the, the volume is extraordinary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the training is impressive, and so every person that uh, volunteers is assigned a supervisor. So you can, you know, let's say you get into a uh, a situation where you're not sure how to respond to a person,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, you can have a, a a live supervisor available to help help you through that um, at a moment's notice.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to? Mention anything else that's important to to share with this conversation?
1: Uh, maybe just that. You know, I think I think one of your questions had had something to do with my kids, and, and you. I think you said asked something about did did they give me important insights? And mm-hmm. uh, always, <laughs>
0: <laughs> How I think. So? My,
1: yeah, my most important skill um, is listening, and you know whether that's to you know, my kids or the kids that I serve in my practice or my students or, uh, in my wife, I, I try to be a, a good listener because I think if you really listen, I think that's, you know, where you're, you're able to, to create, uh, ways to respond. Uh, but it only works if you really listen.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Did your kids watch 13 reasons why?
1: Uh, yeah, parts of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think they were both, um, somewhat, um, I don't know, am going to say bored by it, uh, mm-hmm. not impressed <laughs> by it. Uh, and again, I, I think they were also, you know, they're, they're certainly aware of my work and um, they've, they've, had, they've given me a lot of pretty helpful in, insights. Uh, and, you know, actually my daughter is uh, going into to theater and, and acting. And, uh, you know, she's given me a lot of, you know, I think um, the, the, the ability to translate some of the stuff that really, and my son too, what, what kids say and what, what it means from their perspective.
0: Give me an example. Um,
1: well, okay, here, here, here's maybe one that, um, might fit. So this is something I talked to my daughter about, you know, for a while. And, you know, sometimes there's this sort of, I don't know, myth that kids who are, you know, suicidal or they do something, it's, you know, tension seeking, and a lot of times they, it, it's a way to sometimes adults dismiss distress or dismiss something that's kind of scary as whether they're just they're just wanting attention. Mm-hmm. And so I think my daughter was insightful in telling me, well, yeah, but that that may mean um, something's wrong and, and that may signal something, you know, more, even more deeply is wrong. And so I think she was. um Insightful in the sense that she said it, it, it there's no value placed on the attention-seeking it, It's just telling you something mm-hmm. and so whatever that is is really worth Paying attention to uh, for for and, and not to dismiss it. And so I think that was probably something that she made Crystal clear in my mind was you know attention-seeking or not. It still needs to be attended to
0: mm-hmm.
1: Whatever that means
0: right Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Is there anything else? Any other bits of wisdom you wanted to share or thoughts?
1: Um, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think um, this has been, you know, uh, a pretty, uh, you know, gratifying kind of work that I've been doing and, and uh, you know, it, it's hard, but I think it's, um, I think it's worth doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like really good work. And, um, um, I really appreciate you sharing your, you know, the, the journey of, of this process and then, and all the research that you've done with, you know, shows like 13 Reasons Why and, and even the insights you've shared with, you know, being a parent. So, um, so I really, really appreciate you and your time. And, um, so thank you. Thank you. All right. You take care. You too. Bye.